You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before Yahweh, and say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before Yahweh, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today Yahweh will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before Yahweh. And Moses said, This is the thing that Yahweh commanded you to do, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as Yahweh has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as Yahweh commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons, handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it as a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering, and offered it according to the rule, And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar, beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before Yahweh, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode... 599 of this podcast. Today is Monday, April 17th, 2023. And that was a reading for you of Leviticus 9 at the top of the episode. 
not a long chapter. And really, if you've been following this podcast and listening to each episode for the last eight, you are not really hearing something new. The instructions were given that this is how they were supposed to offer the offerings. This is what the prescription was that they are following. So without going into that again, all I can really say is they were told to offer their offerings, offer their sacrifices in a certain way, certain animals in a certain way, and then do this and then do that. And then this kind of offering is handled this way. And this kind of offering is handled that way. They were told to do it in a certain way. And here they are doing it in a certain way, in the way that they were told to do it. And then the culmination is that you have the glory of Yahweh appearing to all the people. You have fire coming out from before Yahweh and consuming the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And you have the people shouting and falling on their faces. Now, this word shouting, is this shouting for joy? Is this shouting for fear? Is this just shouting for surprise? Like, whoa, what in the world? You know, what is this shouting? I would imagine, and this is speculative, but I would imagine that it's something similar to when you see a controlled demolition of a building, a building that is not going to be used anymore and needs to be taken down. And so you have these experts who come in and they place charges all around the building, inside the building, on the perimeter, certain strategic places. And then those explosions are supposed to be timed so as to take the building down, but not blow it out. And that's what I think of here. And even when people are prepared and they're expecting that and they're standing on the sidelines from a safe distance and videotaping, what do you hear? You always will hear people going, whoa, wow, oh man. And you'll, you'll hear sometimes cheering, sometimes surprise, sometimes maybe a little bit of fear, but you always will hear a response. You don't see people on the sidelines just kind of like, meh, meh, whatever. It's a Tuesday. Yeah, that happens all the time. It's a regular occurrence here. It's a pretty unusual thing, at least uh, when it's a controlled explosion, a controlled detonation or demolition of a building. And here, I would imagine it's an order of magnitude greater than that because you realize this is God. In some sense, Aaron and his sons and Moses, they are the experts who have placed the charges. And here is the thing we have been waiting to see, which is God doing what God is going to do. We're not watching... <laughs> uh, you know, an explosion, expecting nothing to happen. In fact, you'll be more concerned if nothing happens because, hey, wait a second, didn't you place uh, explosive charges? Who wants to go in and double check those? Not me, not it. <clears throat> Let's draw straws or cast lots or flip coins or rock, paper, scissors or something because who knows, maybe it goes off while you're going in there and checking it out. But in this case, you've got what kind of expectation from the people who have been delivered out of hard bondage in Egypt. In case there were still some doubts as to the power of God, as to his holiness, set those aside when you see a demonstration of God's power with fire coming out from before him and consuming the burnt offerings that he gave instruction to be made and to be offered. But, you know, it's curious. It's curious to me because there is so much detail 
And it's not left ambiguous and it's not sanitized in God's word. And put this on the long list of details and stories that will not be turned into a VeggieTales adaptation. This is the opposite of VeggieTales. And this is why I don't like particularly VeggieTales because VeggieTales is literally bloodless. You can't get any more bloodless than we're going to have everybody played by fruits and veggies. And we're going to make it as nonviolent as possible because somehow even knowing that there's violence for kids, that's going to corrupt them or something. They're going to be turned into little hooligans. Uh, I would say actually it's probably the opposite. When there's no fear of God before our eyes, then that's when we become hooligans. That's when we become uh, a bit, oh, shall we say, disconnected from cause and effects with regards to our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And here you have a foreshadowing of the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, which we just recently, a week ago yesterday, uh, celebrated. We recognized, we remembered Resurrection Sunday. Before that was Good Friday. And to the lost world, to the folks who are not Christians, who don't believe all this, it's foolishness. It's just silly. And we are ridiculous. We are absurd. And they don't take us seriously. And they don't believe that we really do believe these things. And to those who believe, it is the wisdom of God. It's folly to the world. It always has been. And it will be until the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. And then nobody will be laughing. It will be more of the shouting thing, right? More of the shouting and the falling on the faces thing that we see at the end of Leviticus chapter nine. But in the meantime, we're silly, we're ridiculous. Either we're making it up or we're believing men who made it up. And if we start getting into ramifications and it becomes clear that we are not simpletons, we are not so dim as the unbelievers want to say that we are, well, then it can't just be that we're misguided or that we're believing myths or that we're silly or that we are pitiful. Then it's that we are actually uh, causing real problems in the world. We're causing problems by spreading this stuff and we can't be serious. So we must be sinister. We must be lying. There's the famous dilemma that C.S. Lewis posed. Oh, what? Uh, the better part of a century ago, in any event, that Christ, by the nature of the claims that he made, he couldn't just be a good teacher. Not when he made the claims about himself that he did. And when his believers made the claims about him that they did, Jesus couldn't have just been a good teacher. That's not an option that's open to you when you read the full accounting. You, you have to be unfamiliar with the details of the Gospels in order to sustain the position that well, he was just a good moral teacher. He's not a good moral teacher if he is lying about himself, if he's lying about God, if he's telling his disciples and his apostles, his followers to similarly join in spreading this lie. He's not a good moral teacher in that case. He's actually either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Those are your options. Those, those really are your options. For those who don't accept that he's the Lord, well, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And consequently, if you hold to the view that, well, I don't even know if he ever even existed. I don't even know if he was a real person. If you hold to that view, well, then his followers have been lying about him. 
or they are lunatics. And if it becomes clear that we as Christians today are not lunatics, we are of sound mind and sound judgment, well then the last option is narrowed down and it's provided for us that we are liars. We are liars and you can't trust us on anything. We're just making everything up and therefore we should be shouted down, humiliated. As Richard Dawkins once said when asked at a lecture, uh, what should we do with Christians? How should we respond to Christians when they make their claims in public about faith in God, about Christ? Uh, Richard Dawkins' answer was, make fun of them. Make fun of them until they shut up and go away. And psychology will tell you and teach you rightly that the quickest and surest way to get somebody to change their behavior is to laugh at them. Laugh at them. And if they were taking themselves seriously before, they will all of a sudden go into something of a reboot sequence in terms of assessing what they just said, what they just did. Well, wait a second. Did I miss something? Why is that funny? Why, why are you laughing? And that's when you get them, right? That's when you get them if they are wavering in what they believe and what they say. If they are wavering, that's when you get them because you provide the explanation and the counterexamples and the proofs that they are actually not a serious person to be taken seriously. They're a silly person to be waved off. But again, to the lost world, to those who are perishing, these things are folly and we are foolish. But to those who believe this is the power of God in Christ Jesus to resurrect us on the last day and to save us, to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. So believing that as I do, I'm going to continue on talking through the ramifications because whether you believe or you don't believe, that's between you and the Lord. Ultimately, it's on your own head, be it, if I have been faithful with my peace that God has called me and equipped me to do. So I want to talk in this episode about a few things, and I want us to consider them in light of God's word, in light of what we as Christians believe How should we think about these things? The first of the items for your consideration is a certain 1953 film, The Robe. The Robe, directed by Henry Coster, written by Philip Dunn, Gina Kaus, and Lloyd C. Douglas, starring Richard Burton, Gene Simmons, and Victor Mature. 1953 is when there were a lot of films being made that you could call biblical epics. This was the golden age of Hollywood. This is also when we were in the thick of the Cold War. After World War II, you've got all of these GIs who've come home. Some of them had been actors before they went off to the war and they returned to acting. Some of them got into acting after their military service. But in all cases, you have a certain type of male, American male, British male showing up on the big screen. And that type is one, I think, indicative of the kind of men who came back from World War II and who fought in World War II. I think for two, the type of male portrayed on the big screen represented the kind of male that the men who came back from war wanted to see on the big screen, the kind of man that they would respect or loathe from their experience in life or death situation after life or death situation, not hypothetically, but in actuality, real people were living and dying. I think you see that in this film, 
the robe. I think you see that in Ben-Hur also too. The Ten Commandments, lots of films made around this time. Not all of them actually biblical epics, but a lot of them having to do with and revolving around questions of faith, questions of our Judeo-Christian values and their ramifications. One of them that's not a biblical epic, so to speak, was a movie called Exodus about the founding of the modern nation of Israel. And in that film, you've got Paul Newman, who is of this type. He's coming from this mold. You've got Paul Newman playing the lead character, actually a pretty fantastic cast of actors and actresses filling various roles in that film. But you have this take charge, assertive, confident, steely-eyed type being shown on the big screen in that film. You have it also here in The Robe. And we started watching it last Sunday, not yesterday, but the Sunday before. And the reason being that this film is on the periphery of the gospel accounts of Jesus. This film is, as IMDb puts it, set in the Roman province of Judea during the first century AD. Roman tribune Marcellus Gallio is ordered to crucify Jesus of Nazareth, but is tormented by his guilty conscience afterward. And why it's called the robe is because the robe of Christ is the subject of some casting of lots. And this Marcellus Gallio is the one who wins the dice roll and he receives the robe. And when he touches it, he all of a sudden has this mental breakdown and he becomes not the man that he was before. He was this confident, square-shouldered, stiff-jawed Roman. And now he is having these kind of PTSD flashbacks to the crucifixion. And what do you do with it? Now, I won't spoil the movie. You should watch it. But what I will say is there are some anachronisms. There are some things, some details in the movie that are not historically accurate. And I was just explaining this to my family last night after we finished watching the conclusion of the film. We watched the first half of it Sunday before last And we watched the second half this Sunday. But as I was explaining to them, there are anachronisms. There are things in this film, as far as timeline, as far as history goes, that don't match up. They really compressed the timeline of early Christianity to show what they showed in the way that they did. But this is a dramatization. And so you forgive some of that, even as you need to keep straight what is being fiddled with for the sake of dramatic performance and making a good movie, as they say. Why this is important is, in my view, in my opinion, this is not a hill to die on, but it is my view, and I will confidently state it because I know my mind on it. In my view, the problem with doing that and fiddling with the historical record and the timeline here is that it opens the door for things like VeggieTales. And the problem with VeggieTales is that it opens the door for all manner of revising the biblical account, the historical record, anything and everything that we want to adapt to make it more dramatic along the lines that we want things to be dramatic in order to sell tickets and put butts in theater seating, (laughs) sell popcorn and soda and candy and all the rest. You know, what comes along with that is you start 
modifying things so that the movie's going to sell better. People will want to watch it again and again and again. It'll win major awards. You start adjusting along those lines. And then next thing you know, we're seeing adjustments for the sake of pushing agendas that are not due to desires to make money. Pushing social agendas, for instance. Pushing political agendas, for instance. You start tweaking to make it a more popular movie or to make it a more profitable movie. And next thing you know, you have folks who are going to come in and they're going to say, well, I really want people to change their thinking and their way of believing on this particular doctrine or this particular social ill. And so now we're going to tweak along those lines. And what's your argument, right? What's your objection? How can you say, no, you don't do that? No, 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 no. Oh, but you just did it with this thing, right? So that's how it starts. I, I, that's how I think these things start. I just did the write-up for several episodes ago, the podcast episode, where I talked about why we don't homeschool or not why we homeschool. And this is not why we homeschool. I mean, we do homeschool, so it would be silly if I said, and this is why we don't homeschool, because we do. But I have, fresh in my mind, talking through the problems that I have with Ambleside Online, going in and swapping out some of the authors in the recommended reading list with what I perceive to be a double standard, unequal weights and measures along lines that are very similar to, they look very similar to what's going on in broader society where we have a certain kind of agenda being promoted through revising the historical record, revising our assessment of our political situation and our social situation, revising the way that we live out our faith as Christians, saying, if you don't pursue social justice and the woke agenda, well, then you're not even saved, perhaps. And you don't know Jesus. And you don't even understand the gospel, as Tim Keller would say, which is super dangerous. It should go without saying, but it's not a given for a lot of people. That's super dangerous to tell people, if you are not woke— in this, 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 this way, then you might not even be a Christian and you clearly don't understand the gospel. You're at least not the kind of Christian that we need to take seriously and listen to in the church when you bring a corrective or you disagree with something or you object to something. When we see words being removed from H.E. Marshall's This Country of Ours, I think it's very similar to things being tweaked in the golden age of Hollywood with biblical epics. And it's a bad idea either way. It's a bad idea either, either way. You have to be thinking to yourself, what kind of a precedent is being set for 50 years from now, 70 years from now? What's this going to look like in a generation if this is really run with? And in the case of Leviticus, for instance, you can say, oh man, all this blood and sacrifice and burning and waving and all the rest. I don't understand it. It just looks bizarre to me. Well, it is. But then again, on the other hand, you have God giving a mercy to his people and saying, this is what I want you to do throughout your generations. It's not going to be one thing right now, and then we're going to totally mix it up. We'll try something different. We'll experiment, and this will evolve into a totally different way of worshiping me, a totally different way of atoning for your sins uh, You know, in five years. right? We'll reexamine it when there's a new generation coming into you know, prominence in our country 
We'll reevaluate. We'll totally reassess and, and liven it up. God in the Old Testament with his people Israel is very stern in saying, do not innovate on this. I'm telling you exactly what I want you to do, and I don't want you to add to it, and I don't want you to take it away, and I don't want you to tweak anything. And when people do, and we are shown examples of when uh, very unwise characters do anyways try to innovate, uh, we're we're shown, we're, we're seeing in the Old Testament that God takes that very seriously. Now, in the New Testament, we have Christ, and we realize now, in hindsight, that all of these were just pointing forward to Christ, but then also, too, we're given fairly wide latitude, I would say, in terms of how we worship God as individuals, individual believers, as individual local churches. What God has equipped us to do is not necessarily going to be all the same, but but where's the balance? Where's the balance? There is still such a thing as rightly handling the word of truth. There is such a thing as wrongly handling the word of truth. There is such a thing as telling lies still. It's not all the same, whether you say this thing is true or the opposite is true. One or neither is not true. One or neither is not true. Or I should say, if you have mutually exclusive contradictory claims being made, It is a logical fallacy to say the truth must be just whatever the average is between the two of them. Or let's say it's both. It's both and, right? That's not wise. That's not a wise way to go about things. What it could be, if we have Christian liberty, it could be that this finds its expression in this way for some believers because that's what God has called them to. And we don't see a prohibition on it. And so it's permissible. You have the freedom to do that. And now the question is, whether it's beneficial, but in the other case, (laughs) you might have certain claims that are made because they're supposed to draw people in and they're supposed to be relevant and they do get a lot of support. You have certain claims that we shouldn't put any stock in whatsoever because very obviously this goes against both the spirit and the letter of God's word. So moving on from the robe, let's talk about some more modern movie fair. The internet is outraged, Yahoo reports. Outraged over Disney's casting of Nanny in the live action Lilo and Stitch. Here's why. This is Yahoo resharing a piece by BuzzFeed from April 15th, this past Saturday. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Disney has tapped Sidney Agudong to play Nani Pelikai in Disney's upcoming live-action remake of Lilo and Stitch. And here they have a large picture of her looking at the camera, probably at some premiere for some movie or some TV show party or whatever. And I'm looking at her face right now, and she does not look like a young white woman. She doesn't. And as it turns out, if you read on, not even very far, she is mixed race, including Pacific Islander, including Polynesian. And she is a native of Hawaii. That's where she was born and raised. And the internet is upset because she's not dark-skinned enough. And because supposedly this is a recurring problem where Pacific Islander actors and actresses, when they do make it into representation in 
Hollywood movies, they are always lighter skinned. And so that's a problem, right? That's a problem. And Disney made a major mistake here because in the cartoon version, this character is darker skinned than this girl is, and she has black hair, and that's what we want to see, the internet people say. That's what we want to see. We want to see the darkest skinned Pacific Islander you can find in this role, or else we're going to call you racists. And this goes back to what I was saying in, and this is not why we homeschool, to try to appease the people who are pursuing social justice and campaigning against so-called systemic racism, and they see racism everywhere, to try and satisfy them, you actually will guarantee that you become a racist and you will never satisfy them. (laughs) The people that are impossible to please, you probably shouldn't waste your time trying to please them. Be polite, absolutely. Try to reason with those who can be reasoned and shown the error of their ways, but you can't cave into these people because here you've got this beautiful young lady this beautiful young actress, and I can't imagine how she's feeling when the internet is all outraged because she's not colorful enough. She's not dark-skinned enough. I mean, how would it be if this were reversed and you go back in time to the golden age of Hollywood and people are all outraged because she is not light-skinned enough? This is the same thing. It is the exact same thing. It is reprehensible. How about we consider whether she's a good actress. How about we consider whether she's going to play the role very well? How about we consider the content of her character? That's what I'm most interested in. If you're going to put her up as an example for young girls in particular in a live action adaptation of Lilo and Stitch. But then this is what Hollywood wants to do these days. This is what Disney wants to do these days is cater to the woke folk and social engineer the rest of us to do likewise. And we shouldn't fall for it. Frankly, there's a part of me that wants to say, who cares whether there's outrage? There's always outrage about everything these days, but actually it does matter because this is a wicked thing. This is a wicked thing that we should be calling people to repent of. There is such a thing as bearing false witness against your neighbor. And it's a very serious charge in our day to accuse somebody of racism. And when the accusations of racism are themselves coming from a place of partiality, then you say, hypocrite, (laughs) you want me to judge with the right judgment? I'm going to start right here with you being a hypocrite (laughs) and stop it. Stop it. At minimum, we should know enough to not go along with these things, but even better still would be to call people out of this because it's a downward spiral that is only going to get worse and worse. The more that you reward it, the more that you give into it, the more of it you will get. If you reward tantrums with children or adults, you will get more tantrums because they will want more of the thing that you rewarded them with. You are actually enabling the bad behavior. This is the opposite of loving in actual fact, because in the end, people end up completely consumed with their bitterness and resentment and hatred. And that's not where we want to be. It's not a good place to be. If they won't listen, they won't listen. But We shouldn't go along with them, and we should try to call them out of it. Moving on, Michelle Blood over at TheBlaze.com reports, man fights off four suspected would-be car thieves in his driveway. I'll put a link in. It's disturbing video. I'm not trying to disturb you. That's not the intent here. I only bring it up because another recent podcast episode, 
I recorded, I was talking about our Second Amendment rights and the push from Democrats to outlaw, to make illegal AR-15s and AK-47s and semi-automatic handguns and shotguns that are semi-automatic or that have a collapsible stock, anything really that has a removable magazine. The Democrats are trying to ban all of the above and calling them uh, assault weapons is how they play games with language and manipulate uninformed people who are simple, who are naive, which again, going back to God's word, we are called not to be, which again is another reason to not raise your kids on veggie tales, in my opinion, because we are raising them to be naive. It's the opposite of helping them to be informed in light of the whole counsel of God. But nevertheless, in my episode talking about why I want a firearm that has maximum lethality when it comes to protecting my family or other innocent people around me, I posed the scenario to you that you could have, you could have four violent assailants break into your house and try to abuse you, try to take your things or harm your family. You could have four violent assailants. And if that happens, do you want a firearm that shoots one bullet? Is that what you want? I mean, you're going to have to really make your shot count and it's going to have to be a high caliber with lots of penetration. And you're going to have to really line those guys up and say, Hey guys, uh, can I get you to move over to the left just a foot? And then you to the right, uh, about uh, another six inches. Okay. That's great. Just stay right there. <clears throat> you know, all right, ready? Pow. That will not happen. That, that is an absurd scenario. It won't happen that one shot is going to take out four guys that only happens in the movies. If it even happens there. And here we've got a story out of Hartford, Connecticut, a Hartford, Connecticut suburb, wherein initially, if you watch the video, there's one guy who runs up, finds that the door is unlocked, jumps in, tries to steal it. This is all security cam footage from the house. Looks like probably over the garage. And the man of the house runs out, grabs this guy out of the driver's seat and gets into a tussle with him. And only once they are tussling, do you have this guy's three buddies who are parked up the street, run up, pull up and then run up and start helping their friend who is out of his weight class with the homeowner, with the man of the house. And all of a sudden it's four on one. And the only thing that saves this guy's life in my opinion, I mean, he fought them off, but then really it, it was the threat of more guys showing up with a call to 911 and calling the police. It was the threat of more men on the side of law and order showing up and holding these guys accountable. That's what drove the four, it looks like young men, it sounds like young men, what drove the four young men to flee the scene and leave this guy with minor injuries. So I presented this to you just the other day, and here we are. And the left will rationalize these four young guys stealing this car so long as they can point to not having gotten a good education, having been raised poor, having come from an ethnic minority. It is Marxism. It is satanic. This is satanic, what the left does in redefining good and evil and judging with partiality. It's satanic what they do in 
sowing discord among brothers. God hates it. It's not just that I don't like it or that I have a certain political agenda. No, God hates it. And for all the people who say we should be unified, how about this? I got an idea. I love unity. Unify on my position. How about that? You unify on my position and then we'll talk about unity. But if you're just saying unity, unity to get me to shut up and agree with you, well then I'm going to call BS on that. That's disingenuous and highly manipulative and you don't actually want unity. You just want quick and ready agreement and to not be cross-examined. Try again. (laughs) Thanks for playing. (laughs) Uh, I award you no points. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, but what he said, what he said. <laughs> The calls for unity, disingenuous. That should go without saying. You do need an AR-15 sometimes. You do need an AK-47 sometimes. You do need a semi-automatic handgun sometimes for all the same reasons that the bad guys want them because they increase their lethality. And if they're going to bring those into a situation where they're trying to steal your vehicle or break into your home and harm your wife or your children or you, when you protect the same, well, then you need to have a firearm that is capable of neutralizing the threats. And that's the way to think of it. It's not first and foremost that you're some bloodthirsty, murderous, crazy, like the left also likes to caricature conservatives in America who are for maintaining our Second Amendment rights, protected under the Bill of Rights, under the United States Constitution, which is the law of the land, unless you want to just admit that you want a total revolution. What you're calling for here is not just tweaking this and modifying that, what you actually really, really want is a total revolution to upend the entire system and implement communism. Unless you're prepared to admit that and go the whole way, in which case this can this can go one of two ways, <clears throat> then I say, no, the, the Second Amendment is all of the reason that I need to give you on why I want to own these things. But besides that, I will say to those who are undecided, who do feel swayed sometimes, well, I'm not a bloodthirsty person. I don't want people to think of me that way. If I own firearms and people know that I own firearms, they're going to think that I am a murderer at heart and I just love violence. No, no. If you love peace, you have to understand that peace is maintained through strength. The wife calls to these guys through the security cam mounted above their garage, I would suspect, and says, I'm calling the cops right now. She yells at them and they're gone. Why? Because the cops show up with firearms. They show up quickly, in force, maybe with a canine. Probably not if it's a mix-up with the homeowner, the man of the house, an innocent party. But they're going to show up with firearms and handcuffs and haul you off to the jail, and then you will be charged. And unless there's a George Soros DA presiding, yeah, you will be going to jail. You'll be serving time in a jail or a prison. Speaking of where George Soros holds sway and Democrats and lawlessness and criminality and all the rest. Edward Teach over at Not The Bee reported just this morning, downtown Chicago looked like a scene out of Black Hawk Down this weekend as hundreds of teens rioted. I'm going to scroll down through just to refresh my memory from before the episode. I'm not going to play 
any of these videos, but I will put a link in the episode description for this podcast episode. I will read just briefly some of the stats that we have thus far. Recap of downtown Chicago tonight, 16th and 17th District Chicago Police Scanner Twitter account reports of what the, quote, teens, end quote, were doing tonight. Three shot, multiple instances of shots fired, people robbed, others maced, CTA employees beaten, attempted to break into the Art Institute of Chicago. You have teen takeover, as it's being called, leaving property damaged and shots fired on corner of Madison and Michigan. Teens also smashed windows and tried forcibly gaining access to Millennium Park. We've got various videos and photos being highlighted in this write-up from Not The Bee. Also a quote from Fox, large groups of teens were seen blasting music from Bluetooth speakers and roaming in front of traffic with some attempting to gain access to the city's Millennium Park, which is off limits to those under 21 after certain hours and the downtown art institute. Some teens in the group began jumping up and down on cars, smashing windows and attacking people inside. One woman told Fox 32 her husband was attacked from the driver's side of his vehicle and beaten after a group of teens jumped up and down on the couple's windshield. The man was taken to a local hospital for treatment. Police were seen escorting frightened tourists back to their cars or hotels to escape the chaos and traffic on Chicago's Michigan Avenue ground to a halt as police attempted to restore order. This is what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. This is what the Maoists did in China. Make no mistake about it. Also, oh, by the way... Chicago just elected an even more radically left mayor than Lori Lightfoot. And his contribution, according to reporting by Hank Berrien over at the Daily Wire, is that we shouldn't demonize these teenagers. Yep, that's that's his takeaway. Don't, hey, don't say mean things about them, right? You don't understand, right? You don't understand. Now I'm going to normalize. I'm going to use my political power, my political position, to run interference for these teenagers and raise awareness to the problem of crime, poverty, hopelessness, violence, gun violence in particular, even though Chicago is supposed to be this gun-free zone. It's not protecting the innocent and the law-abiding citizens of Chicago from these teenagers. So what is it doing? It's making more vulnerable the would-be victims of these teenagers. When you have hundreds of teenagers, I think I would question whether these are all teenagers or whether a lot of these are hoodlums, gangsters. I I mean, any way you slice it, they're lawless people who are old enough to be accountable. If they're old enough to be doing this kind of stuff all around the town, they're old enough to be held accountable. And if they're dragging grown men out of vehicles and beating them to where they have to be hospitalized, for trying to protect their wife and their vehicle, then I'd say they're old enough to get shot for the trouble. And this is why you do want to have a firearm, a loaded firearm with maximum lethality. This is where you would want actually to have an AR-15 with lots of magazines in your belt ready to go so that you can neutralize potentially as many people as are going to want to charge you and rush you and disarm you and then beat you to death or shoot you with your own weapon. This is where, yes, it is important to recognize what these things are for, why we want to have them, because the left is promoting lawlessness. They promote it through the education system, through the media, through pop culture, through the erosion of family, through the erosion of 
Christian faith in this country. They are promoting lawlessness, and you should protect your family and your friends and other innocent parties with deadly force if necessary, if that's what it takes to prevent deadly force being used by the wicked. And the mayor of Chicago, or mayor-elect, I suppose, now saying, and I quote, in no way do I condone the destructive activity we saw in the Loop and Lakefront this weekend. It is unacceptable and has no place in our city. However, <laughs> you knew there was going to be a but. <sighs> However, it is not constructive to demonize youth who have otherwise been starved of opportunities in their own communities. See, there's, there is the Marxist bit. There's the communist propaganda. See, it's actually society's fault that these young people are doing what they're doing. And therefore... Give me what I am going to demand next in the way of a social and political reform, or I would say not reform, revolution. In other words, these street agitators, they get to be the foot soldiers, and this is the kind of person who is going to consolidate the victory, consolidate the win, and push their agenda moving forward. And the left wants to do this all across the U.S., just like a lot of conservatives like myself want to see Ron DeSantis make America look more like Florida in terms of freedom and the protection of the innocent, protection of children, promoting education that is a quality education, not just indoctrination in CRT and DEI and ESG and wokeness. This is what the left wants to make America like. This is their idea of how to make America truly great because they don't believe America was ever good or great. Taking a step back from the U.S. for a moment, sometimes that can help us gain perspective. Mimi Gwyn Lee over at the Epoch Times reports, as of yesterday, Netherlands to allow euthanasia for terminally ill children. And here we have Dutch Public Health, Welfare, and Sport Minister Ernst Kuipers speaking during a debate on acute care, as they call it, in the House of Representatives in The Hague on November 9th, 2022. Mimi writes, the Netherlands has said it will broaden its euthanasia regulations to allow doctors the ability to end the lives of terminally ill children between 1 and 12 years old. The rule change is an adjustment of an existing protocol and doesn't require parliamentary approval. The decision comes after years of requests from some Dutch doctors to lower the age minimum of 12 for euthanasia, as well as debate within the cabinet. The end of life for this age group is the only reasonable alternative to the child's unbearable and hopeless suffering, according to the Dutch government. And let me just stop right there. This is what you get when you purge Christian faith from society, is you get suffering viewed as either only useful politically, as in you inflict suffering so as to accomplish a greater good. As you see it, you inflict suffering on people or threat of suffering on people, the fear of suffering on people to pursue your political agenda, or you view suffering as completely pointless, and why not end it? Why why not end it with termination of life? And oh, ho oh, oh, ho, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from you want to die because you are in so much pain and terminally ill to somebody close to you wants you to die because they're tired of taking care of you, or they're tired of you as a person, and they don't want to be hindered anymore. This is the extension of the legalization of abortion is that at a certain point, we rationalize 
aborting anybody and everybody who is inconvenient to the real reason most abortions are performed, which is not the life of the mother in a physical health sense, but the life of the mother in the sense that she wants to keep on pursuing a career, going to parties, fooling around, doing whatever she wants, pleasing herself. Fathers, would-be fathers, don't want to be saddled with this woman who's now the mother of their child, who they just wanted to have fun with, but they didn't actually want to commit to. They don't want to be saddled with raising this child. Pursuing a pro-life agenda has to look to the next logical step after you normalize and legalize and standardize abortion for the unborn. A consistently pro-life argument and agenda will say, you're going to want this next, just like you wanted civil unions initially for gay people. And then all of a sudden you wanted to redefine marriage. And then all of a sudden you wanted to go after anybody who refused to take part in your ceremonies. And then all of a sudden you want to go after people when they say this is wrong and you should repent. And then next they're taking kids away from parents when the kids identify as the other gender. And the parents are saying, no, 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 you're not that gender. The consistently pro-life conservative position must look to where these arguments go consistently, logically, even if the people making the arguments say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we want either. And this is where it actually, it, it is useful to realize that the thing Christians are accused of is the very thing that is happening with those who reject Christ. They project onto those who believe in Christ, all the things that are true about themselves. It's not we who are lying, it's those who slander Christians and Christ, really, more to the point, it's they who are lying, reaching for anything and everything that will allow them to continue maintaining disbelief and unbelief and disobedience and rebellion against God, to tear down those who make them feel insecure or less than because they've embraced the truth and are pursuing righteousness. It's not we who are the liars and the lunatics if we are following Christ, if we're in Christ, truly. It's those on the outside. And some of them, they don't even know what the next step is. They're just saying whatever they were told to say right now because they're scared or they see a perceived benefit, social acceptance. They'll be viewed as with the times. They will be handsomely compensated for their trouble, or at least they won't be canceled. Uh, an interesting story, <clears throat> an interesting story that popped up from MSN.com, cover media, a time-lapse of satellite imagery from the atmosphere above Antarctica after 20 years, giant iceberg breaks away from the Antarctic. And it's pretty wild stuff. I mean, this is a huge, huge piece of ice that is now drifting out to sea. And what will the effect be? That's a, a question that I have. That's a question scientists should have. What will the effect be on the ocean temperatures in the vicinity or on global climate? What will the effect be? And oh, by the way, if I haven't mentioned lately, I am not a believer in the whole business of climate change hysteria and anthropomorphic global warming or global cooling is going to be the end of all of us. I'm not a believer in that. I think it's a very, very small percentage of 
temperature changes, if any, to speak of, that are due to human activity, the burning of fossil fuels, etc. I see all of these things as Michael Crichton, author of Jurassic Park, saw them. I see these things as a push for global domination, again, by the communists, by the Marxists. They want a one-world government, and this is how they think they can get it, by scaring us all about the end of the world as we know it if you don't give them all your political power, all your liberty, all your wealth, all your economic decision-making. But moving on, Jim Jordan, speaking of the globalists and politics here in the U.S. again, Jim Jordan is 100% behind Trump for 2024. He says, basically, he thinks that Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis are great guys, really likes both of them, but he's 100% behind Donald Trump. He thinks Donald Trump is the guy to go forward for the country. And actually, you know, Mr. Jordan, Congressman Jordan from Ohio, is somebody who I, I would say he was he was right. He was right in the standoff with the House Freedom Caucus. I still think it's good that the House Freedom Caucus um, opposed the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. I think good things have come from that. I think concessions in the rulemaking and uh, committee assignments and legislative agenda and how hard Republicans in the House are fighting, and they should fight, against the agenda of Biden and the radical left in this country. Uh, I think Jordan is in the right spot, and I think he is thinking big picture here. Now, I disagree with being 100% behind Trump. If he is the nominee, if he is the candidate for 2024, I will vote for him. I do not see the accusations against him as being credible or made in good faith by Democrats. I haven't ever, and I still don't, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. These are not credible people. They are ambitious people. They are malicious people. They are just trying to look for anything they can grab onto to remove their political opposition because he wants to undo their agenda, and that makes them very, very angry. Uh, Jim Jordan, I think, is on the side of the good and the true here. And he wants what is legitimately good for America. And he is a conservative. As far as I can tell, I don't think he is some rhino. I don't think he's an imposter. I don't think he's a fake or a fraud. The House Freedom Caucus wanted him to be the Speaker of the House. They put him forward several times. And he said, no, no, I don't want to be that guy. I don't think I am the best person for this right now. I think Kevin McCarthy is, actually. I support Kevin McCarthy. And to my way of thinking, when the House Freedom Caucus is saying, we want Jim Jordan. And Jim Jordan's like, no, you actually, guys, you should want Kevin McCarthy. I understand your concerns, but we need to back Kevin McCarthy. He is the right guy for this right now. I'm busy doing other important things that I need to stay with. Uh, That actually was very persuasive to me and I think spoke highly of Jim Jordan's character and his love for the country that he came out and said that the way that he did. I saw the comment section in some of the videos posted of him uh, endorsing Kevin McCarthy very clearly, very firmly. I saw some of the comments and they were mean. And so I know he's had stones thrown at him by supposed conservatives who are just angry at the left and they are not being careful. Uh, So I'm not going to do that too. I'm not going to do that to Jim Jordan. I think he's on the side of the angels here, but I do nevertheless disagree with him. I disagree with saying let's be 100% behind Trump. 
I don't think he is the best choice and not because I'm believing all the mean, nasty, ugly things that the Democrats are saying about him. I say that because I am looking at how he goes after DeSantis and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I'm also looking at his public show of morality over his life in the public eye. And I do not believe that it is as good for this country as the image that Ron DeSantis has put out. If there's more to the story behind the scenes than what we've been shown or told thus far, then by all means, let's make that known sooner than later. Not that I want to see the guy damaged, but if there's something we really, really need to know about him because he's not actually suitable, he's not what he appears, well, then make that known. Otherwise, stop with the threats of doing so because those are worse for all parties concerned than if you just laid the cards on the table and said, here's what it is. Because it looks like you're bluffing. I'm just going to tell you honestly, Mr. Trump, President Trump, with all due respect, sir, it looks like you're bluffing and doing so in a malicious way just because this guy is challenging you for the presidency. It's not owed to you as far as I know. And we could vote for DeSantis. Now, there's a billionaire Republican highlighted by Jack Phillips over at the Epoch Times who is saying, uh, no, he's reluctant to back DeSantis in 2024. He's a billionaire Republican donor who is saying that he does not want to back DeSantis due to his stance on abortion and other social issues. Not because there's skeletons in the closet, but because DeSantis is fighting too hard or too strictly against abortion and the mutilation of children. And he says, and this is a quote from Peter Fly, Thomas Peter Fly. I'm sorry, Petterfee. Petterfee. Did I say Peter Fly? I meant no disrespect. He says, I am more reluctant to back him. We are waiting to see who among the primary candidates is most likely to be able to win the general and then put all of our firepower behind them. I have put myself on hold, the founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers told the publication, and the publication being here, the Financial Times. Uh, I've put myself on hold because of his stance on abortion and book banning. Myself and a bunch of friends are holding our powder dry. Now, what is this reference to book banning? It's not clear. It's not clear to Jack Phillips over at the Epoch Times. It's not clear to me. What is he banning in the way of books? Now, the closest thing I can think of, the closest thing I see here Jack Phillips has brought up is, quote, in Florida, pornographic and inappropriate materials that have been snuck into our classrooms and libraries to sexualize our students violate our state education standards. Florida is the education state, and that means providing students with a quality education free from sexualization and harmful materials that are not age appropriate. And that's absolutely correct. And this goes back again to something else I've been saying in recent podcast episodes about how states like Wyoming can seem so really deep red and yet their legislative agenda as reporting over at the Daily Wire by Luke Rosiak has made clear their legislative agenda and their voting record in those states is less conservative than states where power is divided or even uh, if you want to compare to what the Democrats do when they're solidly blue, they are more truly blue when their states have super majorities of Democrats than red states are solidly conservative when they have super majorities 
of Republicans. And this is the reason, because you do get these top Republican donors who say, I don't want to give money to that guy. He's too conservative. Because these top Republican donors are financially interested in conservatism. They're economically interested in conservatism. They have a affinity for some of the trappings, but it's an appearance of godliness while denying its power. It's an appearance of conservatism, if you will, while denying its power. These guys are what's wrong with conservatism in the United States, in my opinion. Guys like Thomas Petterfee are what's wrong with conservatism in the U.S. They are why we lose. It is only when really, truly conservative people get energized and say, I don't care if I've got the financial backing. I don't care if I've got the money behind me in this. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't care if I lose my next election. I'm going to do it anyways because this is what I promised to do. This is the conservative thing. This is what I believe is best. You elected me to be a representative, as Edmund Burke would say to his constituents, as he did say to his constituents, in fact, when he was elected to parliament, you elected me to represent you. That doesn't mean I do whatever you tell me to do from here on out. That means I stand in your place and I do what I think is best. If you don't like it, well, then don't vote for me next time. Fine, but I'm going to do what I think is best and don't come (laughs) knocking down my door trying to convince me otherwise. That's, I think, the kind of man that Ron DeSantis is as well. And we need that kind of man. We need more of that kind of man. We do not need more people with big fat checkbooks telling us who is and isn't going to be a winner because they're actually not conservatives. Because when it comes down to it, comprehensively, they are okay with the liberalizing of our stance on sexuality. So they're okay with the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which is not the Respect for Marriage Act. It's the abolition of marriage as we know it. They're okay with that because they have business partners that are homosexuals. They have investors who are homosexuals. They have customers who are homosexuals. They have top executives in the companies that they own who are homosexuals. They have neighbors who are homosexuals. They have people who teach at their kids' colleges and universities and schools who are homosexuals. In short, the people with the most to lose here as they see it are not going to stake it. They haven't been staking it. They're not going to stake it on somebody who has said, don't sexualize young children because the winds may blow in the direction of that being financially dangerous, professionally dangerous, economically risky. And that's what they care most about. And we can't afford to care most about that because In the long run, comprehensively, holistically, we don't have a country anymore when hundreds of teens are rampaging through the cities because you just all you were caring about was what next quarter's earnings report looks like for your corporation or for your portfolio. We don't have a country anymore when you snuff out the truly comprehensively conservative candidates so that your material interests remain intact for now. No, 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 no. And this is where conservatives get a bad rap because it's guys like these who can buy the press. They can buy the advertising. They can buy the votes and they do, and they have been, and they're losers. They think they're the winners. They're actually the losers and the whole country loses as a result of it. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, 
but a poor man with understanding will find him out. And we need to be those poor men and vote for those poor men who will find things out and do the right thing and who hate bribes. Because ladies and gentlemen, conservatives in deep red states and in moderate states across the U.S. don't think bribes are that big of a deal. If you really, if you really boil down what a bribe is, they don't think bribes are that big of a deal. And it's just, it's like Bud Light. <laughs> That's what's rich about the banning of, boycotting of Bud Light by conservatives here lately. Dylan Mulvaney being their spokesperson, it's like, it's a trans beer, right? He's a trans dude. He's a dude who's dressing up like a lady. He's not really a lady. This is a beer that's not really a beer. And why were you drinking it in the first place? Well, these are conservatives who were not really conservatives. They identify as conservatives. And we need to apply the same kind of thinking that we do to the transgender debate to whether we listen to the likes of a Thomas Pederfi. I don't care if he's a billionaire. I don't care if he's a trillionaire. He's wrong about this. He's wrong about this and they shouldn't be keeping their powder dry. They should be doing what's right and not just what's right for them financially, materially, economically. They should be doing what's right holistically and then God will bless that and they will they will be blessed. Yeah, absolutely. The whole country will be blessed. Righteousness exalts any nation, any people. Sin is a reproach to any nation, any people. We have sin reigning supreme and running amok and we need righteousness. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.